The Weekend Variety Wireless. Good evening, everybody. Welcome along to the Weekend Variety Wireless, the Saturday edition. Uh, no holding back. If you didn't know already, big restructurings happening to the, these frequencies that you're listening to. Uh, Radio Live is going to be dissolved into another thing called Magic, and this program will not be included in that uh, next year. So, yeah, I'm really sad. Um, it's been an amazing run, and new cats have been marvellous. So I'm really, really sorry. But um, we're not taking calls on it, because we're going to soldier on to... Oh, the end will probably be Christmas. Coming up shortly. If we did get hit, just on a firm age... Talking about a gamma ray burst, if we got hit by one. If we did get hit, just on a firm imagination's sake, but the atmosphere gets fried and boils, the sea boils, what the hell happens? That's a really interesting question. I think, yes, both of those things are quite possible. It is, it is great fun, by the way, to try and speculate about stuff. You know, like, like if the sun just went out immediately, just like click, the sun's gone. Obviously, everything on Earth is going to die, but it's a really fascinating question to try and decide how would we die. You know, would it be the, the atmosphere freezing or what process would kill us? Uh, that and uh, more cheery subjects along the lines of space weather. Space weather, it's, um, it affects us all the time. Um, the man in question is Chris Rogers. He gave a lecture series just this week, and he's a great chat. Also, something about the Carrington event coming up as well. What's the Carrington event? Ooh. They think that if a Carrington-level event occurred, about 20% of our electrical network could be knocked out and take up to a year to recover. Yeah, good luck with that. Uh, that was a big belch from the sun that happened in 1859, and we only just dodged one by dumb luck in 2012. Uh, oh, heads up for tomorrow night, Sam Hunt. He's awesome. He's our guest for Read Me a Poem. In fact, he recites because he's got them all in his head. Uh, the deal is, read me a poem that you really rate, not yours, well, not necessarily yours, if you have that hubris, fine, uh, but in the entire realm of the, the history of poet, poetry, it would be surprising, but... So Sam does it, and he knows them all off the top of his head. It's like seeing a magic trick, it's amazing. Okay, uh, all about space weather and then astronomy in general with Grant, Grant Christie later on this hour. Good evening, everyone. Yeah, sad news about the show, but here we go. Got this one. The Weekend Variety Wireless. There's a thing called space weather. You may not have heard of it, but you've certainly heard of aurorae, and it's a result of it. If you're just hearing about this now, you've missed a few lectures, but by way of spreading the material around and this fascinating subject, Craig Roger was one of the speakers from the University of Otago's Department of Physics, one of the speakers. So it's lovely to have you on the end of a virtual leash to talk about this space weather stuff, Craig. Great to be here. All right, space weather. It comes in all sorts of different types. Aurorae is what we see probably mostly, is it? Or is there something we're missing? No, that's the, that's the most obvious manifestation of space weather impacting the atmosphere. For most people, the most important aspects are on our technological society, on the, on the infrastructure that we rely on. But, of course, one of the manifestations is just the aurora, which we can appreciate. And so this is what the sun belches out? Yes, the sun does stuff. 
whether or not it's actual physical mass coming from the sun in terms of plasma or whether it's x-rays coming from explosions on the sun, the sun basically reaches out and impacts the environment around the Earth. And in our magnetic field, Faraday would be proud. Faraday would be thrilled. Yeah. All right. What is the stuff then that comes out from the sun? You mentioned x-rays and other stuff. What stuff? Electrons and protons, primarily. I mean, it's just the building blocks of matter. The outer surface of the sun is so ridiculously hot that it's boiling off into space at all times. It's called the solar wind. Mm. So there's just this constant flow of material from the sun out into space. And when things are relatively quiet, it gusts past the Earth at 300, 400 kilometres a second. But at more extreme times, it can get up to, to 900 kilometres a second and really buffet the Earth's magnetic field. All right, these are called coronal mass ejections, right? Coronal mass ejections, yeah. There's, uh, there's an explosion on the surface of the sun that just throws out like a billion tonnes worth of plasma out into space. So it's like a baseball bat coming from the sun heading out into space. Right, let's get to some really sexy stuff early on. I spoke with an electrical engineer about how we would cope with something like the Carrington event, which I think happened in 1859. So the Carrington event is the most extreme space weather event that we know of in recorded history, and it's associated with Richard Carrington, who observed a white light solar flare. He was drawing pictures of sunspots, looking at the sun, and he saw an explosion at one of those sunspots. And within a day, there was massive aurora all over the world, uh, aurora that was seen down as far as Florida and Cuba and Hawaii. And at the same time, there was massive disruption to the telegraph due to the electrical disruption yeah. from, as you said, Faraday's law. OK, back in those days, we didn't have satellites, didn't have internet, and the type of electrical infrastructure was a thing of a madman's dreams. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was completely different technological systems than we have now. Yeah, so my electrical engineer, uh, Nermal Nair, wasn't too worried about what might happen, although we certainly would feel effects if we experienced something like a Carrington event again. And being barely, shall we say, 150-odd years ago, that's basically today in solar time, isn't it? If it was possible to happen 150 years ago, it's going to happen again in the future at some time. Now, I don't want to be chicken little here and, and suggest that the sky is falling. This is more like thinking about earthquakes and volcanoes. This is a hazard that's out there and one day it'll reoccur. Well, wasn't it in 2012? It was just dumb luck we dodged one? Uh, yeah. The belief is that there was a Carrington-like coronal mass ejection that came off of the surface of the sun at extremely high velocity was uh, measured by the stereo satellites that are in space looking at the sun, but that particular coronal mass ejection was not directed at the Earth. They, they go off in all sorts of directions, and it really just comes down to, as you said, dumb luck if the Earth is in the way or not. OK, let's say that hit us in 2012. What would have happened? Well, it's an interesting and difficult question, which we've been trying to study for a New Zealand context, and we're only partway there. But we know, for example, that the U.S. has gone away and looked at this from an American context, and they think that if a Carrington-level event occurred, about 20% of our electrical network could be knocked out and take up to a year to recover. The scale sizes of the costs that they estimate that would be imposed on their economy is just jaw-droppingly huge, and we're talking numbers like half a trillion dollars up to you know four trillion dollars. Mm. That that's huge. Now. The problem is that you, you can't just immediately extrapolate what would happen in the United States to New Zealand because our electrical network is different and our ground is different and 
our magnetic latitudes are different. And so we have we've started working with Transpower. They're really interested in this. They're pretty responsible and advanced in their thinking to think about what an extreme event like a Carrington storm yeah. would be for New Zealand, what the impact of that would be. Isn't that rather parochial? This sort of thing's going to hit the hemisphere of the Earth, right? Or a bit more, because we're rotating. Effectively, it's a global event. It's okay. going to hit everywhere. Yep. Well, whatever we think might happen to New Zealand, you'd have to take into account the, the interconnectedness of the whole world. Just something as simple as I want to order something from Amazon. Oh, yeah. You, we do have to deal with the fact that it would be global. But there are different implications in different parts of the world. So okay. various countries, various nations are going away and researching the potential impact on their electrical networks. And for some parts of the world, which are closer to the equator, the impact would likely to be pretty low, actually. Huh? But those people who are at very high latitudes, and here we're thinking Canada or Scandinavia, the impact would be really high. Uh, and then there's the question of the people in the middle. OK. What does it break, Craig? Uh, basically, it breaks transformers, vital parts of our electrical network. Does it break the internet? This is optical mainly, isn't it? What about satellites? There are other processes that would happen in space that could well zap a lot of the satellites. The internet, yes, there's a lot of optical communications, but everything relies on electricity, and electricity is really, really important. The other factor is because the interconnectedness is timing, and that, that's really important for a lot of computer networks. Mm. And a lot of those timing signals come from GPS, and GP, the GPS satellites are just sitting there in space going ping, ping, ping all the time, and yeah. that's great. But to get to us, those radio signals from the satellites have to pass through the charged part of the atmosphere, which is called the ionosphere, and that will get all lumpy and strange and messed up during a big geomagnetic storm, and the timing will all be slightly off, and it is conjectured that that could really mess up a whole lot of networks. Or well, airliners, aeroplanes. Usually these companies are pretty risk-averse, thank goodness, usually. Yes. <laughs> Would they take off? An excellent question. One thing that is a core part of aviation is to rely on communications so that, well, so that if anything goes wrong, they can put out a mayday call. Those communications rely on the satellites in the first place, and the satellites might be rather sick. And then the other fallback system is high-frequency radio communi communications, the sort of shortwave systems. Mm. If there's a, large, a very large solar flare, which we would expect to be occurring at the beginning of a Carrington storm, the HF systems are just going to get uh, knocked out. The ionosphere gets too thick. Okay. And so, um, yes. Then there's polar flights, if planes are travelling over the poles. There's an explosion on the sun and it flies, it, it throws out coronal mass ejection. But even faster than that, there are relativistic protons that are coming from the sun. Oh. And, and they're, they're, when they get to the Earth, they'll be funneled into the polar regions by the Earth's magnetic field. Relativistic protons, that sounds like they're going bloody fast. Exactly. That is indeed the case. So, for example, it takes eight minutes for a X-ray, which is an electromagnetic wave, to go from the sun to the Earth. A relativistic proton can do it in 10 minutes. So it's going really bloody fast. And that, that will really mess up communications in the polar regions. And it will also cause an increase in the radiation dose for aeroplanes that are flying in the polar regions. Okay. For some of this stuff, we'd get a warning of eight minutes, and for other, we'd, we'd get even more than that. We wouldn't get a warning of eight minutes because the explosion occurs 
and eight minutes later, the x-rays start arriving. Oh, right, well, that's the first thing we see. But so for other stuff, we, we get a bit of a warning, can we turn stuff off? We, yep, yep. As long as we understand fundamental physics, we can start preparing ourselves. And so for the coronal mass ejection, a fast one would take slightly less than a day to get to us. A typical one takes two days. And it's the fast ones that appear to be more, more dangerous. There's a lot of attention internationally now focused at staring at the sun, looking at these coronal mass ejections and trying to work out if they're going to strike the earth. Okay, and just fair enough to say, don't stare at the sun at home. It's very oh, no, dangerous. No. Very dangerous, very <laughs> dangerous. It's not good for your eyes. Uh, so turning off stuff would help and then turning it back on after it's gone, but then again, you've got to rely on the interconnectedness of everything as well. Yep. Well, look, I, I'm not a power engineer, okay. but it seems to me that you'd want to take everything down in a nice controlled manner right. such that you could bring it back up. But there are other possibilities that the electrical engineers are thinking about in terms of armour plating or uh, putting in mitigation devices so that the network can survive through a, a major geomagnetic storm. All right. A lot we just don't know because we really haven't had this level of technology by any means and one of these experiences. No, we, we've, we've never lived through one of these with the technology that we've got today, although, of course, that's been true for peoples forever. I mean, our technology is always advancing. Yeah. Um, and so when the Carrington event occurred, the impact on the telegraph was, was just really, really surprising to people. Um, it got was, hot and melted in places, didn't it? In some cases, I think so. Most of the stories I've heard are of people being able to run their telegraph system without having to connect batteries which they thought was just amazing, you know. There was just currents flowing in the wire uh, induced by the changing magnetic field, and they could modulate them with, you know, like with a Morse code-type clicker. Wow. Um, but then there have been other um, very large geomagnetic storms in, in recent history that have, done, that have done other things that were unexpected. In, in 1967, uh, there was a big blast from the sun that put out a huge pulse of radio waves, and those radio waves overwhelmed the radar systems that the U.S. were using to look for possible Soviet bombers and nuclear missiles coming to attack them. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Well, yes, and, and when, this, when this event occurred, the first thought from the military was, we're being jammed. Yeah. And, of course, the jamming is a prelude to an attack. And so my understanding is that the bombers were being warmed up and, it, and people were getting ready to go when this brand new solar physics unit that was inside the military said wait a minute the sun can do this and right now the sun isn't just the right place to impact our radars every now and again you really need a scientist well you know, as a scientist <laughs> thank you <laughs> another event which may have triggered loss of life may here maybe it even did but it's quite a recent discovery that a sunspot one of these ejection things or something like it actually set off a whole lot of naval mines to see during the vietnam war yes isn't no, this is this is just jaw dropping to me i only heard about this in detail last monday i was at a conference in uh, belgium and dolores knip from uh, the university of colorado in boulder came to the conference and spoke at the session that I was running. She gave an invited talk. And, and Dolores, her, her most recent work has revolved around digging into various US archives and finding these fascinating things, like the 1967 event. So she found this Vietnam event in 1972. 
So there was a big, really big geomagnetic storm. There was lots of interesting implications in space and on the ground. But one of the really unexpected things was apparently the, the geomagnetic storm triggered from the sun wiped out a minefield, a naval minefield with um, sort of 20,000 mines in it that was off the coast of Haiphong Harbor near Hanoi in North Vietnam. And the Americans were blockading North Vietnam to try and stop arms getting to North Vietnam. And, well, I understand they were trying to force them to go to the, uh, to the negotiating table. And so they were stopping the flow of arms by putting out all these mines. And then there was a huge geomagnetic storm. And the mines all detonated. And, and some of them were actually seen to explode. Within 30 seconds, there was apparently a, a naval plane, a US um, Navy plane that was flying over the minefield and just saw them start going bang, 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 bang. And then shortly afterwards, they had to um, reseed the minefield. Good heavens. And it was more than just one or two went bang. These exploded en masse due yes. to this solar activity. According to the report, the naval plane actually observed 25 to 30 explosions inside half a minute. They could also see mud patches where uh, disturbances in the sea where they thought more explosions had occurred and they had to reseed the minefield with thousands of mines. You know, there were thousands of mines that just suddenly weren't there after the storm. Right, and just like the impression of radio jamming previously during the Cold War, this could have enormous implications for, shall we say, foreign relations if it was misunderstood. If it was misunderstood. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great worry to me that, that something could happen at a time of international tension and it's interpreted the wrong way. And that, it could be as simple as a rock coming out of space, hitting a city, for example, and people think that it was a nuclear attack. Mm. And the American military spent a lot of time and effort listening, shall we say, for gamma ray bursts because that's a sign that the Ruskies have let off another bomb mm -hmm. and they found a whole lot coming in oh my goodness but they were coming from deep space they were coming from deep space so, so that's one of these nice examples where equipment that had been set up for military slash political reasons ended up teaching us a lot of, uh, of driving scientific advances in a completely different field, and in that case, astronomy. Mm. May as well talk about gamma ray bursts briefly. That is big, big space weather. Apparently, it's unlikely we're going to get hit by one, but we might not be the only civilization. Our astronomer, Grant Christie, bless him, describing a gamma ray burst that had occurred, and I said, oh, wow, you know, that'll fry the planets. And he almost shed a tear. He says, well, you know, there could be civilizations there. This is a, an awful thing to happen. What's the deal with gamma ray bursts? So gamma ray bursts are associated with things like two neutron stars crashing into one another. Okay. I, I know of an example that ha occurred, I think it was about 10 years ago now. 20, I think it was 23,000 light years away. The gamma ray burster occurred and the energy arrived on the night side of the Earth and the conditions in the ionosphere, that charged part of the Earth's atmosphere, changed from nighttime conditions to daytime conditions due to the gamma ray burster. So the energy that was deposited in the atmosphere was the equivalent of our sun, which of course is eight light minutes away, not 23,000 light years. So, I mean, it's, it was just a vast amount of energy to be arriving from such a huge distance away. Is it likely we could get hit or have been hit in the past by a gamma ray burst, which is 
more damaging? It's, there's, it's been theorised that it could have been a cause for some extinctions. My understanding is that it's been speculated, but there's no evidence for it. But yeah, there have been a number of, of great extinctions that are, are found in the geological record, and um, a bunch of them are puzzling. If we copped the gamma ray burst from uh, somewhere inside our galaxy, would we be fried? 23,000 light years is inside the galaxy. Oh, right, yeah. Have to be, it would have to be pretty close to us to be a, a big problem, but if it was close to us, it would be a big problem. All right. But there's no evidence at this time that there are neutron stars likely to crash into one another that are, you know, within, say, 10 or 20 light years. Of Danger us. zone. We know, that, that we know our backyard environment pretty well. Okay. But if we did get hit, just, you know, for imagination's sake, like the atmosphere gets fried and boils, so the sea boils, what the hell happens? That's a really interesting question. I think, yes, both of those things are quite possible. It is, it is great fun, by the way, to try and speculate about stuff. You know, like, like if the sun just went out immediately, just like click, the sun's gone. Obviously, everything on Earth is going to die, but it's a really fascinating question to try and decide how would we die. You know, would it be the, the atmosphere freezing or what process would kill us? Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Well, it's the sort of thing that some physicists talk about at parties. Yeah, that's after the third Merlot. <laughs> I'm going to play you a little cut here from my latest favourite YouTuber, a guy called Matt O'Dowd for PBS Space Time. I've been gorging on these things because it's quite funny and I want you to tell us about these extremely powerful radiation things that we get hit by. Here he is. Long before the God Particle, there was the Oh My God Particle, a cosmic ray vastly more energetic than had ever been seen or was even thought possible. These ultra-high energy cosmic rays still perplex scientists. Where are these extragalactic death rays coming from? On October 15th, 1991, a single atomic nucleus traveling at 99.9999999999999999951 percent of the speed of light crashed through our atmosphere and streaked across the Utah sky. The nucleus quickly disintegrated into a shower of subatomic particles and lights. That light was seen by the Fly's Eye Observatory, a collection of oversized tin cans that was an early experiment by the University of Utah to spot the highest energy cosmic rays in the universe. Scientists analyzing the Fly's Eye data calculated that the cosmic ray responsible for this particular flash must have had a kinetic energy of 48 joules, an amount of energy we associate with macroscopic, not subatomic objects. That single atomic nucleus carried as much kinetic energy as a good-sized stone thrown at your head at 50 miles an hour. The particle was dubbed the Oh My God particle. Nothing like it had ever been seen before. In fact, cosmic rays of that energy were supposed to be impossible. All right. Fascinating stuff. As he said, extra galactic. Do we know anything about these Oh My God particles? Well, we know they're incredibly rare. I mean, we assume that cosmic rays are generated in pretty exotic processes, possibly in the shock waves around supernova, mm. for example. Although, talking about something with an energy up around 50 joules, I mean, you know, this is, it, it's really hard to get one's head around the idea of a microscopic particle coming in from an extragalactic source that has a similar amount of energy to a cricket ball being folded at, at high speed. 
you're not exaggerating at all. If, if in the extremely unlikely event that it just happened to hit Buzz Aldrin while he might have been orbiting, he would have felt it. Uh, yes, there would have been a lot of energy deposited into, into his spacesuit. Right. It, it'd kill him. Um, it might. Yes, it might. I yeah. mean, it, it, it's, it's, a bit, it, it's a bit hard to speculate exactly what would happen. Right, right. It's not a lot to go on from previous no, experience. No. But, uh, but, you know, it doesn't feel good. It just doesn't feel like a good situation. Right. Okay, these things are rare, but the intergalactic particles that are coming at us at nearly the speed of light thing, they actually have collisions in the upper atmosphere, am I correct, that are equal to or greater than what can be created in the Large Hadron Collider? Yes, something like the Oh My God particle that you were talking about, that's incredibly rare. Cosmic rays themselves are not that rare. There is just this constant stream of high-energy particles smacking into the Earth's atmosphere, and people are studying them, mostly from the ground, because uh, when they smack into the atmosphere, they then basically fire a shower of high-energy particles down towards the surface of the Earth. Like the start of a game of snooker. Yeah, exactly. Actually, that's a really good way of looking at it. Okay. And the reason we have the Large Hadron Collider and, and spent more than a few dollars on it is because we need to look at these things in captivity. We just don't know where they're happening in the wild. Yeah, and it, it, to be able to do a controlled experiment is a lot easier than uh, just waiting for something to come in from space. But nonetheless, there are things to be learnt from the space-based systems. And, of course, when you've got something like the Oh My God particle, I mean, that's at an energy level that the Large Hadron Collider can't get anywhere near. Right. And so, um, you know, it's nice of the universe to chuck something like that us every now and again. Right. Okay. These cosmic rays are going to be a huge factor to take into account if we're going to be trying to transport bags of mostly water and biologically fragile material called human beings out into space. And this is a new show on Sky Part 2 of this thing about Mars, and it's just breathlessly optimistic, I reckon. No one's worried about cosmic rays or anything. Are people too optimistic? You want to have it sit down Elon Musk and say, well, hang on a minute about space weather for going a colony on Mars? It's like when you're travelling outside of the Earth's magnetic field, like cosmic rays are charged particles, Mm. then the Earth's magnetic field deflects some of the radiation that's coming to us. And then the Earth's atmosphere absorbs a lot of the uh, radiation that otherwise doesn't get to the surface of the Earth. Mm. So when we start thinking about taking astronauts outside of the protective environment of the Earth, then there are a lot of hard issues at play and radiation dose is certainly one of them. Now, I wouldn't say that people aren't thinking about it. In fact, there are whole sections of scientists who are really interested in radiation dose and radiation shielding for missions, for example, to Mars. But it is hard. I'm not a rocket scientist, (laughs) but I'm pro-robot. They don't have to worry about these things. By the time we manage to get a person there and protect them enough from lethal radiation, by the time we've figured that been leapfrogged by robotic technology and you can be on Mars virtually while sitting here. I do understand the urge. I mean, a robot can be affected by radiation damage like a human being, but it's a lot easier to build a robot tough. Yeah. Really, much easier. Human beings are um, great generalists. We're very flexible in terms of changing mission and trying out different things, which at the moment robots aren't. 
But having said that, there's uh, an awful lot of effort going into trying to make robots more interesting. Yeah. Who knows? We could put on a headset or, or plug our spinal cord into something in the end. Who knows? We, we shall see. But um, just one last thing on this Carrington event that we kicked off with. Do the laws of physics tell us that we should expect even larger events, more powerful events than the Carrington? Or is that as good as the sun's got? We don't know. Oh. And, and this, is, this is a great frustration. Some people believe that, that, that there are thresholds beyond which the sun can't make an explosion bigger than, than you know, some size. Yeah. But we're, we're really not sure. One of the things that is interesting is that we can look at sun-like stars and see some really big X-ray flares coming off them. That's only in relatively recent history that, that we've developed the technology to see flares on other stars. But we can see some real doozies that are occurring out there. Carrington style or bigger? Well, the, the, because we don't know what the size of the X-ray flare was for the Carrington event. We know about the size of the geomagnetic storm, oh, I see. and we're confident that there must have been an X-ray flare. We didn't even know that the sun produced X-rays until we got outside the Earth's atmosphere and could measure them. Wow. All right. It's a fascinating area of weather out in space, space weather. Uh, Craig Roger, thank you so much from the University of Otago. Thanks so much for this lecture series. All the best in the future. I really enjoyed it. Anything else you wanted to add? I just want to say uh, thank you for the interest, and you're very welcome. Good. You'll do nicely. Thank you very much, Craig. Cheers. Good stuff. Curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Astronomy Today with Dr. Grant Christie. Grant? Hello. Hi, oh, Graham. Uh, I've been many clear nights this week, and that means you don't get much sleep. <laughs> I feel for you. It gets a bit rough sometimes. You know, you start to look forward. You're looking on the horizon for a bit of cloud that's going to come over. But, uh, yeah. yeah, we've had a few clear nights in a row, and it's uh, it uh, knocks it out of you. Yeah. Um, just finished speaking with Professor Craig Roger, Otago University. Uh, his lecture series, you've missed them, if you're listening. Um, but you went to one of the lectures on space weather. Yeah, I went to the one in Auckland, uh, and um, I'd heard two of the speakers before, but uh, they're so good that it doesn't matter. I mean, they're, they're well worth hearing again. Cheaper than Brian Cox. Cheaper than Brian Cox. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, well, it was free. And the, and Otago University put on a nice spread at the end of it. So, Didn't I mean, they? oh, it was a great spread. Um, Gosh, they do well. Ruined my dinner. Otago, they've done really well on the Marsden grants too. They're yeah, really well, they're, they're a sweet. highly rated university. It's not surprising that they do well. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, great talks, really great talks, really interesting. I learned a lot. Mm. Uh, I mean, although they were pictured at the general public, uh, I didn't know that sort of space weather affects uh, pipelines buried in the ground, for yeah. example, and, you know, this has consequences. Uh, New Zealand's a really strange sort of shape uh, that where this matters. It doesn't matter in places like Canada and US where you've got a huge continent and you can send them where you want. We don't have any choices about what direction we've put our pipelines. It's kind of up and down. It is kind of up and down, like the one up to Marsden Point, for mm, example. Mm. And uh, all right, but then you get some guy 
Looking for Cowrie. A loose dude, um, three Steinlagers to the wind, and, uh, you know, digging up stuff yeah, with exactly. his digger. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and it was you that introduced me to this weird thing of uh, the, the Carrington event. No, we, this is the second time we've addressed it, and, uh, yeah, really interesting stuff with... Um, Craig Roger. Yeah, yeah. amazing. And uh, I think there was some event I was reading about recently off uh, in the 1970s off uh, that uh, triggered a whole lot of uh, mines and water off yeah. Vietnam. American yeah. mines all suddenly started exploding and they finally, I think, have uh, sheeted that down to a, a massive um, uh, event on the sun. Yeah, isn't that incredible? So uh, these things, um, yeah, they have a big effect on Earth. All right. Um, hats off to um, the folk launching at Mahia Peninsula, space, whatever they are. Rocket Lab. Rocket Lab, sorry, yeah. Yeah. No, they did a fantastic job. I watched the la launch live. They did a fantastic job with the public outreach of that. Mm. Really great, uh, you know, it was about an hour and a bit. Um, and uh, looked extremely professional. Everything went like clockwork. Um, there's actually, I think there's some video, I haven't uh, got a copy of it yet, but I've, uh, I think I've seen it briefly on the web, uh, showing these, them actually firing out the little... CubeSats, mm -hmm. uh, once they're in orbit, firing them off and uh, into... Uh, uh, so that's something we're going to be seeing a lot, lot more of. Mm. Uh, and now they'll be gearing up to the next. So, I mean, given that they've... What, that's their third launch? Yeah. And that, you know, only one was a failure, but it wasn't really... It was a communications failure on the US side, not on not on rocket. Yeah, land, so this so. is... Now they're looking at making money. Absolutely. I hope they make squillions yeah. because, you know, I mean, it's such a, you know, well-organised thing. I know a number of the people working there, that sort of engineering-based people and uh, mm. people with, uh, I know through the astronomical community who were lured over to, you know, working in that field. Yeah. Have um, they got a cafe, I wonder? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Sign of prestige. Yeah, that's right. Well, possibly they do. I haven't been invited yet. Roast Day Wednesday, apparently. <laughs> okay, you can have a look at the launch on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. Click on, click here for this weekend's rundown, and you'll see the other link that we've got there. And that's a description, basically, of JAXA. Um, kind of only recently have the Japanese... Uh, space program really done quite sexy stuff. It seems though. Uh, well, they've been doing they've been doing a long, a long while really. I mean, just below the radar, possibly. You know, right. they're under the sort of you know, when you have got NASA and ESA sort of doing these spectacular things with huge budgets. But uh, JAXA's uh, been doing a whole lot of firsts as well, which mm. is interesting. And they've got some pretty ambitious plans. They seem to think outside the square a bit. They're probably doing that to avoid replicating what ESA and NASA are doing. Mm. And obviously they communicate and collaborate with those organisations also. But, uh, yeah, they just come up with the... Uh, you know, I think it's sort of a Japanese um, uh, cultural thing. They have a slightly different sort of culture and uh, how they go about doing things. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, a lot of us drive Japanese cars and have yeah. done for a long time. They you, go really you well. You don't. You haven't been lured onto a Japanese car yet, Grant. <laughs> <laughs> still stuck with German. I'm still stuck <laughs> with it. Yeah. Dad's so upset. Because <laughs> he was in the war, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah, in the SS. They gave him one and he said they were like, useless. <laughs> oh, well. Thanks, Jimmy Carr. Okay. <laughs> a puny star might be a specimen from the early universe. Yes, this is uh, an interesting uh, study. This is um, uh, just, you know, when, when the universe was first formed, the only elements you had to build stars with were hydrogen and helium because you need stars to build the other elements in the periodic table, the stuff that's in our bodies. Uh, and so... 
by looking at stars and finding stars that have very few of the elements other than hydrogen and helium, you can tell how old it is. Mm. And so they've been uh, looking for some of these stars as surveys that have been going on. We've talked about them before. Um, but, uh, you know, this, they've detected one now that's... Uh, they reckon it's estimated to be around 13 and a half billion years old based on the amount of metals or the stuff other than... Astronomers call everything heavier than helium metals. Okay. I mean, there's, the universe is made of hydrogen, helium and metals in terms of atoms as far as astronomers are concerned. That's okay. a fairly broad generalisation, but they use metals in a different term to what we use metals in an everyday language. So these all these other elements uh, are only a tiny fraction of what you'd expect uh, to uh, be in a star, and uh, the fact it has so few tells us that it was made very, very early in the universe. Ah, when there just wasn't any of that stuff around to use. That's right, and it's sort of in the order of like a ten-thousandth of the amount of metals that the sun has, for wow. example, which is sort of more or less... I mean, Earth is unusual because we have very little hydrogen and helium, uh, virtually none, uh, free hydrogen and helium, and uh, you, but you have, um, we have lots of other stuff like carbon, iron... Silicon. Silicon. Aluminium. All those sort of materials that uh, makes life work and makes our planet sort of, you, you know, kind of distinctive. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So this thing was really, really red-shifted? No, it's not. It's not there. It's in our galaxy. Um, the funny thing is that our galaxy, uh, well, basically, it's obvious. Well, how did it end up here? Well, because, you know, our galaxy wasn't always like it is today. I right. mean, it originally, it was just a big ball of gas when the universe was very young, and there were, this is one of the sort of stars that formed very early. Now, the, the paradox here, and though... And it ends up here. It, well, it's still in our, well, our galaxy is a remnant of the yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, first galaxies that formed in the universe. So it's not totally surprising that we'd find them. What's funny about this one is it's actually a very small dwarf star. Um, and it's not a... Uh, a you see, the, 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 the usual parad paradigm for the formation of stars very early in the universe mm. is that they had to be enormously massive monsters to form um, because you, it's hard to get hydrogen and helium to collapse into a ball and start reactions in the centre um, because the universe was hotter then. It's cooled off since, uh, you know, the, after, ah. soon after the Big Bang, the universe was hotter, the gases were hotter, it was hard to get them to compress and collapse and to form stars. So the, the main channel that astronomers have seen is that you had to have um, a really massive amount of dust and or, uh, hydrogen helium gas in order to get enough gravity there for the thing to even collapse. You couldn't make small blobs of hydrogen helium collapse and form a star. So how come we've got a star that dates from that very earliest epoch, we've identified this one, that is uh, only, a, you know, like it's only a, a fraction of the sun's mass? How so, come it hasn't gone bang or died well, out? Well, it, it hasn't gone bang because it's a sort of red dwarf, it'll never go bang. Okay, so it's, uh, it's much smaller mass than the sun. It's about, uh, I think it's about 15% or something mm. like that, the sun's mass. So it it's a very small... It just chugs along for 13 billion years. Yeah, mining those missiles. And it'll exist long, long before the sun's... Uh, after the sun's gone. Right. So this is going to have a, a, life year, a lifespan many times longer than the age of the universe is now. So it's going to be around for a long time. But so they, what they're thinking is that, yes, you have the star formation out of making massive stars in the early universe that did go bang and did make all the elements. That's how we ended up with our universe today, was mm. that those stars could form. But what they're thinking is that around some of those massive stars, in the, dust, in the, in the gas swirling around them, forming a disk, small stars can form in that disk. 
Uh-huh. So they're now thinking that, you know, maybe there's, there is this population of very old, very low-mass stars. They're hard to see because they're so faint. You have to be close to them if you see them, and this one's relatively close to it. So yeah. it's, uh, it can be seen and it can be studied. So that's a sort of a, a, a sort of a quite an insightful breakthrough in terms of, you know, how the universe developed. I mean, the, the idea that you only had massive stars at the beginning, and they made all the elements—that's fine, you know, producing supernova. But there's another channel of making stars as well, and these are still these are remnants of the very earliest universe. Right in our galaxy. In our galaxy, and because our go galaxy up. was built up from yeah, you know, stuff back at that time as it, well. It doesn't. That star it didn't just talk. suddenly. It didn't start just five billion years. The sun's five billion or four and a half billion years old. Yeah. The galaxy was already old by right. that stage before right. the sun ever formed. So the sun has about around about one and a half percent of its total mass is stuff other than hydrogen and helium. This star, it's more like a ten thousandth of right. that. Okay. If it could talk. Yeah. It's it, been it, around. It, well it's been around. It's just been quietly orbiting around and yeah. minding its own business and yeah. then some Far out. Okay, now let's talk about this um, a super Earth. It's a planet orbiting a star that's really close to it. Uh, Proxima Centauri probably comes off the top of your head if you have uh, any interest in astronomy for uh, the closest star group to us, uh, the Centauri outfit. But Barnard's is really close as well, and it's a strange star. That's right. In fact, Barnard's star is the closest single star system to the Sun. So Alpha Centauri, which is about just over four light years away, is actually two stars similar to the Sun orbiting each other with a third Proxima Centauri orbiting a long way out, but mm. around orbiting those two sort of solar-type stars. Um, so that's Proxima Centauri. But the next closest star after those three, that that's all in one system, is Barnard star. And it was discovered by astronomer Barnard a long time ago because it was, A, it was close enough to be observed, but uh, he noticed that it, it was moving across the sky noticeably. So if you took photos of it year by year by year, you could measure its motion across the sky, and when you can see a star moving on a time scale of a few years, you know it's close. Right. And uh, they're able to work out its distance uh, quite accurately, so it's been known for a long time. Just by triangulation? Yes. Hmm. Okay. Yes, I mean, basically, you can use, well, astronomers call it parallax, but basically uh, using, uh, you know, you observe the star on one side of our, the Earth's orbit around the Sun, and then six months later you do it again, and July, because February. you're looking at two slightly different angles, yeah. the stars in the foreground move back and forward relative to the right. ones in the background. That's called parallax, and that's commonly used to, that's used to measure. Okay. So it's been controversial for a long time, because back into the 30s, there was an astronomer called Vanderkamp who uh, argued for years and years and years, right up until he died, that he'd found planets around... Uh, Barnard star, but nobody else could really replicate it. It was very controversial. It led to all sorts of arguments and uh, in the scientific community. Mm. Um, but now this is a, um, a very good uh, detection. They, uh, the authors sort of claim it's over about 99% certain to be real. Mm -hmm. And what makes this interesting is that in the next decade, there's going to be telescopes available on Earth and in space that'll actually be able to image this thing directly. Right. So you'll be able to see it. Um, it was detected by the wobble method. So in other words, as, as the planet's going around its star, it's pulling its star very slightly backwards and forwards. And the speed of that pull is about just over a metre per second. So that, that's walking speed. Right. So from Earth, they're measuring the motion of that star in space and measuring it coming towards us and away from us slowly at about 
walking speed and right. using that to infer there has to be a planet and also it is a um, it's a the planet will be something like a a, a lighter version of neptune or uranus oh. uh, in other words an, it's in the icy part of the solar system oh. um, in our case it would be sort of jupiter and beyond which okay. is the icy part um, in this case because the star is so feeble it's actually a bit closer to its star no chance for lgms Oh, well, it's early yet because, I mean, the, the, the fact that this object is the, already there and this is a common sort of planet we've been involved in finding ourselves around these sort of little faint stars, um, they, uh, there could well be more terrestrial-like planets orbiting quite a lot closer inside of it that are too weak, to, too feeble mm. to detect because well, their, their gravity is right. weaker. So over the next decade, it's going to be explored in detail and I don't doubt that they'll find other planets. It's unlikely there's only one. Right, LGMs meaning little green men. <laughs> yes. uh, we've only got a minute or so, but just want to uh, hats off to this Yuri Milner. If you are a billionaire, I mean, you could spend it on stupider things. That's right. I, 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 He's I, looking for I, alien I, life. He is. He's uh, and uh, he and his wife actually have set up this uh, thing called the Breakthrough Initiatives, and uh, they've been having all these ideas about sending clusters of little spacecraft off to Alpha Centauri, um, and all those sort of interesting things. Uh, but now he's sort of looking around the solar system and looking at possibility of sending a privately funded missions to Europa, to Ganymede. Uh, they're leaving Mars alone because it's already being covered by NASA and Europeans. Yeah, you don't want to and all up. that. And you have to dig for, you're going to have to dig for life. You're not going to yeah, find yeah. on the surface. You've got to dig into yeah. deep, and that's a different sort of thing. But they, they could put something to orbit around Europa to look at uh, Europa close up, and they could put something into orbit around um, Enceladus and fly through the geysers that are shooting out of mm. the and sample of that. All of that's possible. And, you know, he's got the pockets that are deep enough to do it. Mm. Yeah. Good one. Wow. Wouldn't that be neat? Yeah, it would. Would oh, you, well, would you blow your fortune on it? Uh, if I had a fortune... Get a new BMW. <laughs> I really don't know. It's an interesting question, actually. I don't know. All right. Um, Grant, thank you very much. Yeah. And we'll talk again next week. Yeah, cheers. Good luck with the, trying to get some sleep. Oh, yeah. Pray for rain, I'll shall go, we? I'll go home and We'll do a, a rain dance. It's <laughs> <laughs> culturally insensitive. Life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Can you believe that people are actually nicking the crosses at the various commemorative displays, the 18,200 crosses? There's one at the Auckland War Memorial Museum. Uh, and if you've got a relative there... You find the cross, you can just take it home. But oh, it just makes me wonder the motivation. See a cross, someone you don't know. Oh, I have one of them. Been waiting for one of them all the time. Oh, gosh, I've been trying to find one online. Haven't been able to find one. Here's a free one. I'll just take one. I want a little wooden cross with a man's name on it that I have no idea who you are. Apparently for garden ornaments? They interviewed some of the people that have taken them home. Have they end up at the garden centre? I don't know. It's beyond me.